This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. You're listening to The Church Boys Free Fall Q&A. It's Billy Hallowell here with The Church Boys Podcast, and I have Pastor Rafael Cruz here. How are you doing today? Billy, it's great to be with you. So let's talk about your book first. You have a, a book out, uh, A Time for Action. Tell me about this. Well, you know, the, the subject of this book really came out of about three years ago. I was at a pastor's conference in Ames, Iowa. And at that pastor's conference, there was a statement that George Barna had made right after the 2012 election, saying that in a survey he made, he found out that 12 million evangelical Christians were not even registered to vote, and another 26 million had not voted. That's a total of 38 million evangelical Christians out of an estimated total of 89 million. That's about 40%. That 38 million, depending upon whose statistic you, you read, goes all the way up to 55 million. So somewhere between 40 and 60% of Christians are not voting. No wonder we have what we have in America. If people of principle are not voting, if people of principle are not running for office, what is left? It's funny, too, because I, I've interacted with some Christians who will say, well, you know what, we're not commanded by the Bible to vote, and, you know, it's a worldly thing, and we're not going to do it. I mean, I've heard this, and how do you respond to those people who say that? Well, you know, the most common uh, statement I hear from many pastors, politics is a dirty business, I don't want any part of it, and they wash their hands off. Well, you know, as I very clearly explain in my book, A Time for Action, if, you know, if politics is a dirty business... It's again because people of principle have not been involved in the political process. So if we acquiesce, if the people acquiesce that have those Judeo-Christian and constitutional principles, and what are those principles? Honesty, integrity, hard work, individual responsibility, the rule of law, and yes, free enterprise and limited government. And by the way, the Bible speaks a lot about that. You a minute ago asked, And you said, well, these pastors say the Bible doesn't tell us to vote. That's not true. You look at Deuteronomy 1.13. In Deuteronomy 1.13, it says, You choose from among you wise men, men of understanding from all your tribes, and I will make them rulers over you. You choose, not God appoint. You choose, which means you select, you elect. Then if we go to Exodus 18.21, Moses has just taken the children of Israel across the Red Sea. Now he's in the wilderness trying to govern. The Bible says 600,000 men plus women and children, so at least 2 million people. And uh, Moses is working himself to death. And here comes his father-in-law, Jethro. And God speaks to Moses through Jethro. And in Exodus 18, 21, he says, You select from among the people. Again, not God appoint, but you select. You elect. And then God gives four qualifications. Able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness. That's how you vet every candidate. Four clear qualifications. Able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness. And in this book, I go in great detail about explaining what those four qualifications mean. 
And what's the big takeaway from the book? What do you want people to do after they read it? Well, you know, praise God that there is so much emphasis on Second Chronicles seven fourteen, which says, if my people, which are called by my name, that's the people of God, that's the people of faith, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then God says, I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, I will heal their land. Yes, we must start in prayer. But prayer is not the whole equation. We go in prayer to go to the presence of God, to have communion with God, to get wisdom, revelation, direction from God, to be empowered by God to go do the work God is telling us to do. So the second part of the equation is 2 Corinthians 5.20 that says that we are ambassadors for Christ. That means we're God's representatives here on earth. We're God's hands, we're God's feet, we're God's mouthpiece. And Jesus said, shout it from the housetop. So the purpose of this book, A Time for Action, is after you get off your knees, we need to put feet to our prayers. We need to be involved in the civic society because, you know, what has happened is so many pastors have divorced themselves from the civic society and the church has ceased to have an impact upon society. They are just playing church inside the four walls. Again, Jesus said that we are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. Well, light is worthless unless you point it to darkness. That's out there in the marketplace. We have to, you know, we have to have an impact in all of society. The church is supposed to be the moral compass of society. But if the church is so afraid, there are so many pastors, and again, I mentioned this in great detail in the book, in Time for Action, so many pastors that are hiding behind their pulpits. They're scared to death of losing their tax exemption, although no church in America has ever lost its tax exemption from speaking of politics. They're so afraid of not being politically correct. Well, I, I very emphatically tell in my book, it's time to be biblically correct instead of politically correct. What concerns you the most about culture and where the country is right now? Well, the culture obviously is going in the, right, in the wrong direction. We have seen a deterioration of values, a deterioration of morals, but that has been precisely because the church has divorced itself from the civic society. Look, 1962, prayer was removed from schools. Before that, kids used to pray before school started. In 1963, the Bible was removed from school, something that most Americans don't know. One of the very first Bibles in America was printed under the auspices of Congress to be primarily the textbook for primary schools, high schools, and universities, and it was so for over a century, so much for separation of church and state. But in 1963, the Supreme Court banned the Bible from schools. But here's the sad thing. The church remained silent. Their excuse is a political issue. How can you call prayer a political issue? How can you call Bible study a political issue? But that's what the church did. But do you know the consequence of that silence? After 1963, the statistics are so clear. Teen pregnancy skyrocketed after 1963 and so did violent crime. And we have the same situation with 73 when abortion on demand was legalized. And, uh, and then we had the June 26 decision when the Supreme Court attempted to redefine marriage. Now that one actually is starting to act as a catalyst because that decision is much more than redefining marriage. It is actually a frontal attack on religious liberty. 
So that decision is causing the sleeping giant to wake up. And I am very encouraged because many pastors across America are starting to say, we cannot be silent anymore. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in Second World War in Germany said, silence in the face of evil is evil itself. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. We cannot be silent anymore. Yeah, and, and it is interesting what you say about the Supreme Court um, decision on gay marriage, because that, that has come up a number of times this week with people saying they think it's a catalyst for action, um, and that people are going to start. And also you have the fact that you have the bakers, you have the photographers, you have the wedding vendors who are now under fire, um, and not just wedding vendors, the printer who didn't want to print a shirt for a gay pride parade. You know, All of that, those legal battles, I think, are going to spark more of this discussion about religious freedom, and, and how do you balance those rights with these rights now, because it seems like there's a real problem there. Oh, there's a huge problem, and it's compounded by judicial activism. We have so many liberal judges. For example, in the case of Melissa Klein in Oregon. Yes, just met with them yesterday. She yeah. got fined $135,000, you know, upheld by the high co high, higher courts in Oregon. She's about to lose her business, perhaps even her home. And the interesting thing is, you know, the, the, the man who did it, had been a client of her for years. Came there, bought pastries. All of a sudden, she, he shows up with another man saying, we want you to cater our wedding and do a wedding cake for us. And she said, oh, my friend, I'm sorry. I can't do that. It violates my, my religious beliefs. And he said, oh, no problem. The next day, he slapped her with a lawsuit. But, you know, even worse than that, the case of Dick and Betty Odgard, this wonderful couple in Grimes, Iowa, had a wedding chapel for years. They did weddings, catered the weddings, did the food and the flowers and everything. Again, a same-sex couple came asking to be married, and they said, I'm sorry, we cannot do that. It violates our religious beliefs. Well, they lost their ministry. But here is the ironic thing. Of it, the, it, that couple had already been married three months before. It was all a sham to shut down their ministry. You do wonder, you know, are people set up? It would be, the interesting part, the, the light at the end of the tunnel on that is that their business is now a church again. It, was, it used to be a church. It actually has become a church. And, and so I had interviewed them about that, and they had said that was the, the piece of the puzzle at the end of it is sort of like, all right, well, at least now this building will once again be a church, right? The yes, irony it became it. a church. They're just members of that church. Right, yeah. I mean, right. they've, and they've lost that business, which... Yes. Um, now, let me, let me ask you this. So... Few people right now are more involved in the political process than you having your son running um, for, for president. What is that like to have your son running for the highest office in the world, let's say, but in the land? Well, you know, it is something very interesting. I remember when my son was being sworn in as U.S. Senator. I couldn't contain the tears from my eyes. And I th thought back of when... Over five decades ago, I came to this country, didn't have hardly any money, couldn't speak a word of English, and to see my son being sworn in as U.S. Senator and potentially to become the next president of the United States of America, all that comes to my mind is only in America, only in America. This is the greatest country on the face of the earth. And by the way, a country that was founded on the Word of God founded by men and women seeking the freedom to worship Almighty God.
what a wonderful heritage we have in this. I mean, it must be overwhelming, as it you're is. saying, to, to see that having you come here, like you said, with almost nothing, not knowing the language, building a life, having a family, seeing that your son become a senator, run for president, and, you know, be one of the most popular candidates among the Republicans. Um, is it challenging ever, and I, I wanted to ask you this for a while, when, you, when you're watching, it's your son, right? And so, but you're watching on this national stage, Things be said that can be hurtful. Things be said that are that are tough, that are difficult. Is that a hard thing as a parent to watch it, their kid run for president? Well, actually, it is energizing. And let me tell you why it's energizing. Jesus said, they persecuted me, they will persecute you. You know, if you're not making an impact, nobody bothers. It is when you are making a profound impact that everybody's going to come at after you with slings and arrows. So actually... Both Ted and I get energized by the attacks. We know they are not true. As a matter of fact, they become vicious and malicious. And uh, But, you know, the truth of God will prevail. And, and if we stay on the straight and narrow, that is a man of integrity. That is a man of honor. And uh, these uh, attacks have no validity. But, you know, unfortunately, uh, people that don't do the research... If you say something often enough, people will believe it. So I ask, what I ask people all the time is, don't listen to the rhetoric. Look at the record. Don't listen to what these candidates say. Look at what they do and what they have done. Jesus put it this way. Ye shall know them by their fruits. It's about time we do some fruit checking. You know, we cannot get swayed by all these entertainment, all these promises that are just hot air with nothing to, to be a foundation. We cannot just believe someone that will change their minds every other day to see. see. You're talking about Don, Donald Trump. You see, Trump, you see <laughs> Jeremiah chapter 6. Jeremiah chapter 6 talks about those who tickle men's ears, preaching peace, peace when there is no peace. And God calls them false prophets. You know, they are, unfortunately, politicians will tell you what you want to hear. But how many times have we seen a candidate for public office tell you all these wonderful promises of what they're going to do only to get elected and do exactly the opposite? Happens all the time. Happens all the time. Um, I wanted to ask you, my, my last question for you, is about this story that I've seen in the last couple of days. And whenever, you know, I cover faith and religion and culture all the time. And so, and I've been a Christian my whole life. So when I hear somebody saying that they felt the presence of God or they felt God compelling them to do something, I understand what that means. And I think 99.9% .9 of Christians, 100 hopefully, understand what that means. And so there was this discussion on a radio show, I think, late last year, where you had talked about um, Ted's wife having this affirmation that running for him running for president was the right thing to do. And some, some outlets have sort of run stories on that, and, and they clearly don't really understand it. So I wanted to ask you about it and explain to me sort of what that process was like. Okay, let me just, uh, when, when people were encouraging Ted to run for president, he and his family spent six months in prayer trying to seek direction from the Lord. I remember one Sunday that after those six months of prayer, the whole family was together at Ted's church, First Baptist Church in Houston, and also his senior staff was with us. After church, we met in the pastor's office 
and we were on our knees for two hours. At the end of that time, Ted's wife, Heidi, uh, told the story. She said that she had received a CD from one of her family members, a Christian uh, music CD, and she was driving and she was playing this CD. And all of a sudden there was a song where Jesus was saying in the song, seek my face, not my hand. And that statement impacted her so strongly that she began weeping. She had to get off the road and park because she was weeping, she couldn't drive. So anyway, she told that story at the, uh, at the prayer meeting. As a matter of fact, she played the song before she told that story. And there was a sense of awe when she told this story. And, and, and it, it, we all were impacted by this statement, seek my face, not my hand. And uh, it's like God was saying in that statement, seek me, not what I can give you. And uh, it was at that time that, as I said, we were all impacted. And uh, Jesus, uh, Ted said, Lord, here am I. Whatever your will is, I'm willing to do it. And that's when he felt the peace to basically move forward and uh, announce that he was running for president. It was just something out of a sense of peace that that was the right thing to do. And I lied, I have one more question. Yes. Has, has anything shocked you about the process? I mean, because it's like this concept of running for president. Has anything stunned you or surprised you or shocked you about just the process or things you've seen in the process? Well, the thing that has shocked me the most is uh, candidates... Uh, you know, go to blatantly lying, the personal attacks. Ted has tried to focus on issues, talk about issues, but several of the other candidates have uh, gone, become involved in mudslinging, in attacking the character of the individual. That's something that Ted has not done even once. He has not and he will not attack the character of any candidate. Now, issues are fair game. What Ted has done is point out the issues where these candidates have been inconsistent and the interesting thing is he has been called a liar for just playing the words of those candidates in their own words. So in essence if he's saying you're a liar they're calling themselves liar because he was just playing their words. But it's just, a, it's just sad that people will lower themselves to personal attacks instead of the issues. Let me tell you, America is facing some very, very difficult issues, especially with the passing of Justice Scalia. We are one supreme justice away from losing our religious freedom, from losing our Second Amendment rights to keep and bear arms, from losing our right to life and having abortion on demand even to the moment of delivery. This is a critical, critical thing in America. If we have one more liberal appointed to the Supreme Court, it may take a generation to correct that. So it is imperative that we elect a true constitutional conservative that will only appoint to the Supreme Court justices that have a proven record, because the problem with Republicans in the past is they have taken the easy road and saying, well, somebody doesn't have a record, it'll be easy to confirm them. But that has given us 
justices appointed by Republicans who have been ultra-liberals, like Souter and many others. So we need to make sure that we abide by the Constitution. The Constitution does not give the Supreme Court or any judge, for that matter, the ability to make law. Article 3 is very clear. They are not to make law. They're only to interpret the law. So judicial activism has to end, and the only way it can end is we appoint justices that are strict constitutionalists. Well, very good. I appreciate your time. Is there anything else you want to talk about that maybe we haven't? Well, I will just say this. It is a time for action. As I say in my book, if we remain comfortably sitting in our pews or at the sitting in our homes, in our couches, watching the idiot box, we're going to lose America. <laughs> you know, I used to tell my son many, many times, you know, Ted, when I lost my freedom in Cuba, I had a place to come to. If we lose our freedoms here, where are we going to go? There is no place to go. So it is imperative that people of action, people of faith, become involved in the civic society. You know, there's a verse of scripture in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 29.2. It says, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. When the wicked bear its rule, people mourn. And by the righteous, he's not talking about people walking in self-righteousness, but people walking in the righteousness of God walking in the Judeo-Christian and constitutional principles that have made America great. And as I said before, what are those principles? Honesty, integrity, hard work, individual responsibility, the rule of law, free enterprise, limited government. When we have, when we have politicians that stand on those principles, we have peace, we have prosperity, we have harmony, people rejoice. When those who do not abide by those Judeo-Christian principles, which are the foundation of America, what do we have? We have poverty, we have unemployment, we have chaos, we have immorality, people mourn. But if the people of principle are not running for office, if the people of principle are not even voting, all that is left is people without principle electing people without principle, and it becomes our fault. We have a responsibility to elect politicians, elect politicians that are not politicians, but they are servants. I think one of the greatest uh, teachings that we get from looking at the life of Jesus is servant leadership. Servant leadership. One of the things that Jesus said is, he who wants to be the greatest needs to become the servant of all. And so this is one thing that my son truly understands. He's a servant of we the people. We need representatives, presidents, elected officials to realize that we don't work for them, they work for us, and they are our servants. And any politician that does not understand servant leadership is not fit to elected office.